The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 15th, 2018. On this week's show, Yahoo's Jeff Passan will join us to discuss baseball's league championship series with topics including Red Sox pitcher David Price's mysterious October awfulness. ESPN's Jeff Carlisle will also be here to talk about the shocking success of the grassroots effort to keep Major League Soccer's Columbus crew in Columbus. And finally, Devorah Myers of Deadspin will come on the show to assess reigning Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles, who continues to soar to previously unseen heights gymnastically and who's finding her voice off the mat as well. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Uh, Sunday Night Football, Chiefs, Patriots, final score 43-40. Scorigami. Scorigami. Score fourth scorigami of the season. But that's great. You know, that's all well and good. But what we really need to address is just how much scorigami, the cult of scorigami, the community of scorigami, I like to think of it as a scorigami community, has grown, taken off in the last year. The Not, not John Boyce of SB Nation, who did the brilliant scorigami piece, but the guy that we had on the show that talked about, um, who started the, 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 the bot that lets you know when there's been scorigami and the odds of scorigami occurring, has 30,000 followers now. Congratulations. I know. The Scorgami tweet on the Patriots-Chiefs game has 10,000 likes, but beyond those cold numbers, it's really the conversation that is impressive, <laughs> the comments. And this is like a healthy place to go for comments. There are no Scorigami haters. Scorigamis are unique scores, but you don't have to Scorigami alone. It's a whole Scorigami family. And people are really taking the analysis to new heights. Uh, Luke... Jarisati. A lot of people are talking. <laughs> Lukerbomb12 Luker on Twitter noted that it was Belichick's ninth Scorigami. Wow. He says he's 9-0 and in Scorigamis, passing Pete Carroll. 9-0, and you don't lose in Scorigami. Everyone's a winner. And it's really hard to say who like the coach with the most Scorigamis is because like George Hallis probably had like True. 40 Scorigamis because every score was Scorigami yeah. in, in the early have to, days We have of to do era-adjusted Scorigami. We, we do need that. So if anyone's listening wants to create a bot to adjust that for uh, for, 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 for the, this current era, that would be great. The other thing is that someone else noted in the the uh, the discussion forum there that uh, it was the fourth Scorigami of the year, third in which, in which at least one team scored 40-plus points, second in which both teams scored 40-plus points. And that's to be expected because a lot of the outliers, the scores that have never been achieved in the NFL, are higher-scoring games. So more offense, Thank good you, for Stephen. the fans, good for Scorigami. Everybody goes home happy. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix.
On Sunday night in Fenway Park, David Price was not super-duper impressive. The Red Sox starting pitcher gave up four earned runs in four and two-thirds innings pitched, leaving Game 2 of the AL Championship Series with a 5-4 lead and two men on base. Those runners didn't end up scoring, and Boston ended up winning the game 7-5 to to even their series against the Houston Astros 1-1. to And while Price wasn't credited with the win individually because he didn't complete five full innings, it was remarkably the first time any of his teams, Tampa Bay, Detroit, Toronto, or Boston, had won a playoff game he'd started. They'd previously gone 0-10, which is an ignominious major league record. Joining us now to discuss Price and other playoff matters is Jeff Passan. He's a columnist for Yahoo!, the host of the Yahoo Sports MLB podcast, and the author of the book, The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. Welcome, Jeff. Great to be back, gentlemen. How are you? Doing good. I think the David Price mystery is more like a fifth of a billion dollar mystery. <laughs> it's not not quite in the same economic ballpark, but $217 million over seven years, highest paid pitcher in the history of baseball, as you noted in a column you wrote last week, Jeff, at his introductory press conference when he signed that deal, he said, I think I was just saving all my postseason wins for the Red Sox. Not true. It turned it, it turned out. It, well, he's still saving them. Yes. <laughs> he's he's been saving up for a while now. It's it's interesting to note that David Price got what amounted to a standing ovation from Fenway Park. The level that it takes for him to reach now for people to be satisfied is incredible. He just needs to be not bad. It amazes me that players can be so good during the regular season and so not good in October. And I'm not one of those people who believes that 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 isn't a thing. I think choking in the playoffs absolutely is a thing. And I think David Price suffers from it do you see the way that he talks to himself in the way that he takes these deep cleansing breaths you know that that he has like gone through the ringer mentally about what it's like pitching in october and that he is doing everything he possibly can it's actually kind of sweet to see the way that he's approaching this in, in the way that if you had gone and spoken with someone and tried to go through therapy for like a mental, uh, you know, a mental block you had with something that he's doing those things that you would do. Right. And, and that, that, that would be my counter argument is that he is trying to process the the methods and the mechanisms and the tricks that sports psychologists give to athletes to get through not just highly pressured moments, but pretty much every moment. I mean, all of these athletes work with mental skills coaches. The Red Sox yep. have one. Um, uh, Alex Cora, the manager of the team, was asked about this regarding Price, and he said he didn't know how many times Price had actually visited with the mental skills coach, that it was private between the two of them. This is according to a piece in the Wall Street Journal. But the reality is that, A, they do this as a routine matter, and that, B, it is dumb to argue that the playoffs aren't different. They are different. Everybody is a fragile – the brain is a fragile organ, and every athlete, no matter how good, is going to to suffer some effects of – being forced to play in these pressure situations. And David Price is an example of an athlete that has struggled with it. And it's stupid to argue that 
he should just be as good in the playoffs as in the yeah. regular season. Not every athlete is going to perform yeah. exactly the same in these kinds of situations. And and I'll tell you what, my my opinion on this has sort of evolved over time. I, I met a woman a couple years ago uh, at, at a speech I was giving uh, about the brain. And, and her name is Lindsay Thornton, and she works with the U.S. Olympic team. And she's a psychophysiologist. And what her job is, is to essentially assess athletes' brains and help train them to, uh, to succeed in tiny moments. And, and why that matters more for the Olympic athlete, I think, than anyone else is because Olympians have one time every four years where they really, truly must perform. I understand World Cup events and, and other things that get them to the Olympics, like qualifiers matter. But in reality, they're performing for one event every four years. And some of the work that she's done and, and some of the, the knowledge that she's passed along to me, it's absolutely incredible to see the way that some athletes can compartmentalize pressure situations and and just succeed in them and where others their brain waves literally are going haywire and they need to teach themselves not to do that that whole brainwave thing seems like it might be bullshit but uh i i, I do not I, do you really think so i mean anything where you get to st- talking about uh brainwaves and and maybe fmris my uh my brainwaves start to go a little bit haywire because it's I I just think I'm that gonna, we don't I'm know. Gonna, I, I think we don't know. I think we don't know. But okay. I also I think we do know that there are you know there are chemical triggers in the brain, and we all oh, come react on differently don't, to different situations. Don't don't start talking about chemical triggers in the brain, dude. I mean, okay, I think well, we hold, can, on, hold on. When we when we get off here, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you papers, and I'm going to send you research. I'm not saying that uh, you're listening to a quack. I'm just saying, well, one thing that I think is interesting is that we know that most teams now have these mental skills coaches, right? And I think that it's interesting to me that we went from saying, oh, being clutch like makes no sense. The numbers don't support it. And now like Stefan is on here saying, obviously, like being clutch like uh, makes sense. Like we we did like a total 180. I I I disagree. See, I think that maybe numerically clutch is not provable, but in isolated cases like David yes. Price, some athletes do not respond well to these kinds of situations well, and I they also, need to figure out why. I also feel like it makes more sense, as Bill James has said, it makes more sense for pitchers than for hitters because when you're pitching, you're just like standing there thinking about it all game long, right. whereas it hit, hitting is more reactive. Anyway, back to my point. With the mental skills coaches, we know that this is a thing that teams have decided is important. Um, players seemingly think it's important but what we don't know jeff is like what the mental skills coaches are doing, doing what and whether what they're doing actually makes any sense or makes any makes any difference right and also what their qualifications are the red sox mental skills coach is las gutierrez he's a former scout like how yep. is he qualified to be a mental skills coach i don't know and i don't mean to impugn las gutierrez maybe he is qualified best maybe mental skills to, coach in the majors maybe he's gone to mental skills <laughs> coach school yeah. Do you have any sense, Jeff, of what these people are doing? Or is it like totally different from team to team? It's funny. I've I've tried to talk to num- a number of mental skills coaches. They have no desire to <laughs> put them out there. And that's because that might be bullshit. Now, the, you know, in the case of somebody like Harvey Dorfman, whose, whose book is, you know how I think it's the Bill Walsh book. 
that gets passed around yeah. in NFL circles, right? Har- Harvey Dorfman's uh, original book on mental skills is a lot like that in the baseball world. I think it was printed more times than Bill Walsh's book. I think there's still uh, new copies being printed these days. But uh, him, Ken Revisa, uh, who worked with the Tampa Bay Rays and other organizations, th- there have been psychologists sure. who who really, th- their mental skills uh, for athletes were what I was talking about with Price before. Shrink the moment, go pitch by pitch. Like almost, it's funny, almost every cliche you hear from an athlete these days seems to have sprung from a psychologist's couch. <laughs> yeah. Because, because it, if it's you, it's routine, if, it's like to get yeah. into your routine, repeat phrases over, over and over in your head and yep. get to that sort of happy place. And I think some athletes can't get out of their own head to use another cliche. So they lose the focus on the routine in particular moments. And maybe that's what we're seeing with Price and Kershaw. I, so let's I talk about Kershaw. I, oh, I, and, and I think this dovetails with Kershaw well, too. The, the problem with this whole thing in trying to assess it is that because we cannot quantify it when we're in an era where everything seems particularly quantifiable, it, it's tough to assign... Uh, more resonance to it. And that that's why the stuff I was talking about earlier that Josh called me a moron for thinking might be true. Uh, th- that's why <laughs> that that's why maybe I'm drawn more to that because I want something to be quantifiable and to tell me why Clayton Kershaw has has not as a general rule pitched well in October. And and yet unlike David Price, Clayton Kershaw has had moments. Like, look at what he did in the division series. He came out and pitched eight shutout innings in game two of the division series. Didn't he pitch really well in the World Series last year in game one anyway? Exactly. He has had moments, and then he has had moments where he just folds. And that's why, to me, Kershaw's an even more confusing case. Clayton Kershaw is a pitcher who never has been average in his career. And in the postseason, while it's been up and it's been down, when you look at the end game, it's been patently average. So in his start against the Brewers, he gave up a home run to a middle reliever, which is weird. <laughs> it's uh, it's not a thing that you see every day, but the Brewers just keep uh, sending middle relievers at you uh, throughout the playoffs, and that and that's sort of been the secret to their success during the season. They let them bat too. They let them bat. This worked for them very well in Game One. Bullpenning, it's genius. Who needs a starting pitcher? Just keep throwing fresh arms. The Dodgers have no chance. Then in Game Two, the Brewers bullpen gets crushed, and then like the parade of of ex players on the like Fox uh, post game show is watching like. You know, your David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez. Oh, you can't have Frank Thomas. You can't have all these relief pitchers going out there. They're going to get tired and the Dodgers are going to crush them now. And obviously the answer is somewhere in between. But this is an unprecedented strategy for the playoffs. um, And we're just going to have to wait and see how it works out for the Brewers. But it's kind of fascinating to see it play out and see the conversation about it in real time. As someone who after seeing game one of the ALCS in person wrote that 
the Astros are looking like a dynasty right now. I am not above very interesting takes from single game sample sizes. <laughs> However, to say that bullpenning in in the fashion that the Brewers have done it is not working or is not going to work flies in the face of the previous 165 games that they played where they absolutely did that and won the National League Central, which was the toughest division in the National League this year, by doing it. So so to say that you cannot find success in doing that is, is just not real. Like yeah, I mean, they to, have make the, to make the obvious point, I mean, they wouldn't have been in game two of the, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to blow game two of the NLCS if they hadn't used this strategy. Right. And, and look, is, is the Brewers manager, Craig Council in a seven game series, potentially playing with fire by running his bullpen arms out there time after time after time? Of course he is. But guess who did that too? Terry Francona in 2016 with the Cleveland Indians and they got to extra innings of game seven of the world series doing that. And yeah, Andrew Miller was tired and did not look the same at the end. And Cody Allen was tired and did not look the same at the end. And frankly, hasn't looked the same ever since. But when you are seven wins away from a championship, you stick with what got you there. And, and you just hope that you have the kinds of pitchers who can make it through and that the way that you've used them during the season has allowed them to, to weather whatever soreness they may have or whatever fatigue they may have right now and make it all the way to the end. Well, you guys got to hope that their mental skills are, are up to the task. Right? <laughs> um, let's try to put the, the, the usage of the Brewers bullpen into some season long context, Jeff, they were great toward the end of the year. I and mean, you talked about some fatigue, but in a piece that you wrote last week, um, you cite some numbers from September. The Brewers' bullpen ERA was 2.03 in September. The next best team was 2.75. That's nuts. You can't look at what the Brewers have done and say that this is some kind of fluke. Corey Knable, their closer last year, came back uh, after a really bad first half and was utterly dominant and has been throughout the playoffs. Josh Hader has been the best reliever in baseball this year and uh, maybe the best we've seen in a long time. And the the flaw so far has been Jeremy Jeffress, who sort of has been has had an up and down career. Whenever he's been in Milwaukee, he's been really good, and he was an All Star this year, and he's just been extremely hittable. and And you saw after he gave up the game winning home run to Justin Turner in Game Two, he said that was lucky. It, it was not lucky because you can't be throwing your third best pitch against Justin Turner. That's what the Dodgers are hoping to do. They want to wear you out. I want to end on a bigger picture question about um, bullpen strategy. And we've heard a lot of discussion in the last few years about how teams' increased use of relief pitchers has changed the game in fundamental ways and makes games longer, which is a thing that Major League Baseball is not super psyched about. Um, but a thing that has occurred to me, especially during this series, is I've probably paid less attention to baseball this year than any year. I've got other things going on. Uh, still still enjoy baseball on occasion. But like uh, 
with with this Brewers team. It's just like a parade of dudes I've never heard of <laughs> coming into the game. And just yep. I'm curious from a marketing perspective, it's like if you have middle relievers all the way down, it's like middle relievers are the least known, kind of traditionally the least respected players in all of, of baseball. And to build an entire strategy and really orient your entire team around this seems kind of fundamentally weird. And I wonder if there's been any discussion of that at a league level or if that's something you've thought about. I, I wrote earlier this year pretty much along those lines how baseball's problem or one of baseball's problems with marketing is that the starting pitcher has long been the star of the sport. Like right? the running back in football, sure. Ex- exactly. He, he, he's he been the guy who can go out there and can be the one person who can single-handedly take over a baseball game. He's not quite the quarterback, but at very least, you knew in the past he was going to be a guy that you were going to see for seven innings, whether it was going well or was not, and that you might see for nine innings. And now the starting pitcher is – in, in many cases, an afterthought. With, with the Brewers, right now, it's almost an anachronism. But when you see what the Tampa Bay Rays did this season, with, at times, after they traded Chris Archer, one starter, at one regular starter, and we're just bullpenning every day, not a whole lot to get excited about. And when I'm hearing from middle-aged white guys that baseball's too boring, <laughs> you know that that is like their that is their key demo right there. If they lose middle-aged white guys, the the sport is not it doesn't exist anymore. Jeff Passan is a columnist for Yahoo. He's the host of the Yahoo Sports MLB podcast and the author of the book The Arm. Jeff, thank you very much. Gentlemen, the pleasure is always mine. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the Columbus crew, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about another soccer topic, the U.S. women's national team qualifying for the 2019 World Cup after trouncing Jamaica. I love a good trouncing. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. The guy who owns the Columbus crew of Major League Soccer has wanted to move the team to Austin, Texas, pretty much since he bought the Columbus crew of Major League Soccer in 2013. When those desires turned into public action last year, fans and city officials revolted. They held rallies, created hashtags, filed a lawsuit, and most important, bought fewer tickets to games. Their efforts appear to be paying off in a potential deal in which investors, including the owners of the Cleveland Browns, will buy the crew from Anthony Pre court and MLS will let the guy have a new team in Austin. Jeff Carlisle has been covering the story for ESPN. He joins us now from Hartford, Connecticut, where he's with the men's national team awaiting their friendly against Peru on Tuesday night. Hey, Jeff. How are you guys? 
Good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this outcome sounds like it could be a win-win for Major League Soccer. You get a hated owner out of town without getting totally blackmailed and soaking citizens dry with a ridiculous stadium deal. And you keep a founding franchise of the league in place, which has been an obvious issue since this started happening. Obviously, there are complicating factors with that narrative that we'll get into. But how is this being spun in Columbus? Well, I don't think it's necessarily being spun. I mean, I, I think without question, this is being you know celebrated unabashedly. I mean, people are just going absolutely crazy and and are just overjoyed. And and you can understand exactly where they're coming from, given that a year ago, you know, this team had one foot out the door. Uh, you know, I remember talking to Anthony Precourt, you know, when he made the announcement, and you know. Anytime he talked about Austin, Texas, it was, you know, this effusive, you know, enthusiastic uh, tone that he had in his voice. And, and anytime he talked about Columbus, you know, he, he talked about like extensive, exhaustive talks with, with, with the people there. And, and you could just tell that this, this was a guy that did not want to be in that city any longer. And um, I mean, I, I saw, you know, when the San Jose earthquakes left San Jose in 2005 to move to Houston, I mean, I saw that whole debacle, if you will you know, up close. I mean, and, and certainly you could say it worked out because San Jose got a team and, and Houston ended up being a successful market. But, you know, the pain that those fans felt was real. And, and I really thought I was looking at a situation that, you know, where history was going to repeat itself. So there are typically two ways that these um, situations play out. The first is, as you indicated with um, the team moving from San Jose to Houston, is that if the owner wants to you know, move the team. I'm, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Clay Bennett moving the Seattle Sonics to Oklahoma City. There are like dozens of examples, but that's the one that springs to mind for me right now. Art mm -hmm. Modell going from uh, from Cleveland to Baltimore. If the owner typically wants it to happen, it it usually happens. And then the other scenario is if the owner will just float the idea because he's trying to extort the city to build him a new stadium. And so when a deal doesn't go through it's typically because the you know it, it was like a ploy and the city the original city ends up building a new stadium so this to me seems different in that the owner really did want to move it wasn't fake it was like um you know that this seemed clear that it was going to happen and so and then there was this grassroots movement the save the crew movement and so i'm curious how much of an impact do you think that had how much can uh, Columbus Crew fans take credit for the fact that this didn't end up happening the way that it seemed like it was going to happen? I think the Columbus fans can take some credit. And I, and I think that comes from the fact that they just kept this issue front and center. I mean, I can remember watching college game day. I mean, different sport, you know, different broadcasts and seeing Save the Crew hashtag signs in the background. I mean, I think they did just a fantastic job of just keeping it present and, and, and not taking this lying down. Now, certainly, I think in the background, as, as much as fans might not want to acknowledge this, the league also deserves some credit as well because, they, you, know, you know, Don Garber is the commissioner. He's got longstanding ties with the NFL. He used to work for the NFL. And so I think his ability to get the Haslam family on board, you know, that was – a, a coup as well. But I, I think, you know, it, it, there is something to be said for the move, the momentum that accompanies a movement. And I, and I think the save the crew folks, you know, 
just they, they did an, an amazing job of just not taking saying hey we're not going to take this we're, we're going to explore every every possible avenue and the Columbus partnership which is a kind of an alliance of, of local businesses in Columbus you know they they deserve a lot of credit as well I mean they you know they were you know if, if save the crew was kind of the public face of this you know the Columbus partnership was the one that kind of worked behind the scenes with the league to, to try to make this you know you know this movement a reality and and keep the crew in columbus so um yeah I, I think there are a lot of heroes but you know certainly i don't think the save the crew folks can be overlooked i have a question about how this benefits major league soccer because in my mind major league soccer garber could have just said sorry anthony pre-court we're just gonna you can sell the team the haslam's can buy it you know, they can pay what they want to pay, and we are not willing to accommodate your extortive effort here to move to Austin, which, by the way, Josh, I alluded to in the intro, and, and you mentioned this, the, the, how he wanted to move there. In his contract to buy this team in 2013, it said that the franchise could not be relocated anywhere except for Austin. So this has been in the works <laughs> for a long time. But when you look at MLS, they are trying to expand pretty aggressively. Um, they're at... 23 teams now. Cincinnati gets a, a team next year. Miami and Nashville are signed up for 2020. Um, and what Major League Soccer has done here is basically allowed Austin to leapfrog other cities that were candidates. Charlotte, Detroit, Indianapolis, Phoenix, Raleigh, Sacramento, San Antonio, yeah, San the Diego. Different- There's a lot of cities that want teams in this league. Why accommodate this guy when you could have placated the Columbus fan base by having new owners come into the league. Well, let me jump in quickly just to make a point that like, as compared to all of the other major North American professional sports leagues, there's a huge number of markets that want major league soccer teams and that are realistic expansion opportunities. I I think they benefit in a number of ways. (laughs) MLS loves deep pocketed owners. They love billionaires with a B. Mm-hmm. And by getting the Haslam's on board, they, they get an owner. That they, and, and also the Edwards family, that, that's another key component to this. Um, you know, they get a local investor in Columbus. And that was really what was missing in Columbus for, for many, many years. Um, you know, when Precourt bought the team, I mean, he lives in California. He's a San Francisco native. He, all and he he's did, got Texas connections, right? His dad was in the oil business and yeah, made his, yeah. his hundreds of millions that way. Right, right. And so, you know, he, you know, he, he just, you know, he, he bought in. And, and, and the one component I think you have to remember about all this is Soccer United marketing. So when an, an owner buys into MLS, they are not only getting a team, but they are also buying into the company, Soccer United Marketing, which handles media rights for, you know, the national team, um, both men and women. You know, they, they, they do a lot of business with Mexico's national team and, and scheduling uh, international friendlies in the United States. And those are big money makers. And so uh, so I, I think you have to make sure that when you're talking about investors investing in MLS, you look at it through that lens. Um, I think, it, you know, in terms of getting pre-court to sell, I mean, he didn't want to sell. He, he wanted to stay in MLS. He just didn't want to do it in that city. And the, and the, and the Soccer United marketing piece is a big reason why he didn't want to sell. So it was a it was a question, I think, of, you know, whenever a CBA negotiation comes around, MLS cries poor. But there are reasons why these smart, rich investors are pumping money into this league. 
And Soccer United marketing is, is a big part of that. We don't need to get into a long digression about this, but we should note that Jimmy Haslam, um, his money comes from Pilot J, the uh, Pilot Flying J, the yep. truck stop uh, chain, and his company paid a $92 million penalty after an FBI investigation. So that's a that's a thing that uh, the MLS, MLS is now associated with, if you want to talk about black eyes or, or otherwise. But I wanted to talk, um, I wanted to ask you about the deal, the stadium deals in Columbus and in Austin. I think um, stuff isn't definitive in Austin right now, but the kind of predominant recurring feature when um, a move like this happens is that the new city typically gets soaked um, and taxpayers get soaked. So what are we seeing? What's it looking like in Austin? Should we feel bad for the for the good people of Austin, Texas with the deal that they're going to make to get this soccer team? Well, I mean, there, there's been several rounds of negotiations in Austin. Um, they do have an agreement um, and, and they had a term for it, which which, it's, which is escaping me at the moment, but it, it's more like a, a term sheet, I think they called it. And then now that gives the city the, the right to negotiate a lease with Precourt Sports Ventures, which is kind of the umbrella company that Anthony Precourt fronts. Um, and there have been a lot of rounds of negotiations, and, and there was a lot of concern Um you know, at one point there was like nothing to stop Anthony Precourt from someday upping and leaving again. But you know, through the negotiations, uh, you know, they did institute, you know, a penalty. You know, it, you know, a pretty substantial one at that. And so I, I think that the negotiations are at a point where uh, both sides are, are reasonably happy with with, with what they're getting. Um, but there is, you know, you, you keep hearing, you know. Austin City Council members, uh, one woman in particular, Leslie Poole, who says we need to hit the reset button on this. Uh, one concern is that they, the city did not really look at other bids for what to do with, with McCalla Place, which is where the proposed stadium is going to be built. And so I think there's still a little pushback uh, in terms of that. There's also the county is stepping in um, saying, well, hey, you made an agreement with the city in terms of like property taxes and things like that, but, you know, you, you didn't make a deal with us. And so that's a little bit of a, a concern there, I think, for, for pre-courts, uh, you know, ambitions in, in terms of getting a stadium done. So uh, I, I think there has been a fair amount of due diligence by the Austin City Council to, to make sure, like you said, they don't get soaked. Um, but th- this isn't a done deal yet. And in Columbus, actually, things look pretty rosy. I mean, one one reason is that this isn't an old stadium. I mean, this is like a 17 or 18-year-old stadium. They don't need a brand new facility in Columbus. And, you know, as much as MLS loves getting soccer-specific stadiums, it has one there. I mean, so from the Haslam slash Edwards group's position, it's not a, a, a total necessity to get something new built. And apparently there's no deadline for a new stadium. There's no deal. They can continue to play in the, in the, in the existing facility. Um, so whether it's like Columbus, a famous, it's like a famous American soccer stadium too, the site of many Dos Ameri- American Dos Acero games over Mexico. Yeah. So maybe this actually ends up not being so bad for, for Columbus in terms of its taxpayers being put on the hook for a new unnecessary sports stadium. 
Well, I would say not so fast. Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing you have to remember about Crew Stadium, now you know, known as Moffrey Stadium, it, Lamar Hunt built that almost as like a proof of concept, um, basically to show other owners around the league that it could be done. Could be done, right. It, you know, it's, it's, it's a stadium with not a lot of amenities, um, not a lot of suites. Uh, you know, it's, you know, I mean, it doesn't really accommodate large events. I mean, the times that I've covered U.S. national team games there, especially against Mexico, there has to be like a huge auxiliary press area. Mm-hmm. The press, the existing press box is tiny. Um, and so I, I would be really surprised if the Haslam family and the Edwards family went into this not pursuing a new stadium. Right, but it does reduce their leverage a little bit is what I'm saying. I mean, typically an owner will go in and have some card to play. And the Haslam's card is, hey, we're saving soccer in the city. It's not, we're going to move this team out of Columbus. Right, right. But um, you certainly, they want to be able to maximize (laughs) the money that they can make off of it. I mean, they're not going to just rely again on Soccer United marketing. So um, I think there will be a stadium deal of some sort. Uh, again, we'll, we'll see who ends up footing the bill. Um, you know, there have been some, some sites identified. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's like anything else. The devil will be in the details. One last question, Jeff, and that's more about MLS more broadly. This is a money-losing league still, and you talked about Soccer United marketing being a, a desirable revenue source for these rich people that are willing to put up you know, $150 million expansion fees. Um, Neil DeMoss, who uh, wrote the, the Field of Schemes book about, uh, about stadium, stadium deals, in, in America has noted that, you know, one, one view of major league soccer is that it's kind of a Ponzi scheme. We keep, you know, ponying up 150 million, 150 million, 150 million and expanding and expanding. But when will there be results? The flip side of that is that, look, if these guys are willing to do this, the investors, then there has to be some potential and maybe even some current benefit to owning these teams. Where do you sort of fall on, on the economic argument that major league soccer has to at some point demonstrate some genuine economic viability like a big TV deal um, to, 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 to continue to attract these kinds of investors? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily buy into the belief that it's a Ponzi scheme. Um, I mean, I, I do think there are an awful lot of unknowns about the revenues that flow into it, and in, and in particular, some. I mean, some is the ultimate black box. I mean, those financials are not available. Um, I remember there was one equity firm that did buy into it and that I'm I'm trying to remember, I think it was Providence equity partners. I I might be misstating the name, but, um, and so, and, and the amount of money they put into it was made public. And so that began to give people kind of a ballpark of what it was worth. But, um, again, you know, the number of teams that that you can have is finite. I mean, it's going to have to stop at some point. And, so, I, I mean, I think, you know, there, there is a TV deal that, that's coming up again, uh, I want to say 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it might be a year or two after that. But, I mean, it, it's kind of a, the ultimate chicken and egg. I mean, you can't get a big TV deal unless you have, unless you, you really have dispersion of, of teams in the United States. Yeah, the next deal isn't until 2024. MLS gets $90 million a year now from its broadcast contracts. They're going to need a lot more 
money from networks to, I think, get to that um, yeah. that, that profitability stage of, of a league's um, uh, lifespan. And you do have to wonder whether if TV ratings don't increase, you know, in-stadium uh, attendance has been going up, but if TV ratings don't start increasing over the next few years, whether the bubble might burst. Jeff Carlisle covers soccer for ESPN. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Hey, anytime, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. USA Gymnastics made two announcements late last week, and the sport's biggest star, Simone Biles, unsurprisingly wound up at the center of both. The first was the selection of the U.S. team for the 2018 World Championships that start later this month. Biles is, of course, on the team, competing at a big international event for the first time since the 2016 Olympics, where she won all the medals. The second was the appointment of Mary Bono as the interim president and CEO of the Gymnastics Federation, which has been flipped flailing badly in its response to the sexual abuse scandal involving now-convicted former team doctor Larry Nasser. Biles, who was one of hundreds of girls and women who say they were sexually abused by Nasser, made sure everyone was aware that hiring the former Republican congresswoman was another bureaucratic mistake. Deadspin's gymnastics correspondent Devorah Myers joins us now. Hey, Devorah. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. Simone Biles, Devorah, has an awful lot of influence right now. And before we get to the latest potential screw-up and Biles' ability to put a giant red arrow and point it at it, let's talk about how transcendentally great an athlete she is. She basically took a year off after the Olympics and has returned, as you wrote in a recent piece, pushing technical boundaries of the sport. Can you describe what she's doing and where Biles stands right now in the pantheon of great gymnasts? Uh, well, I mean, it's hard to truly describe what she's doing because I've been covering her since 2013 and I've always struggled to find the words of like, or the synonyms for speed, power, like how many words can you use to describe how great she is? I think one of the interesting things that we've been seeing since she returned to the sport is now that she really has nothing left to prove, she's just kind of going all out and showing crazy skills and nothing that she's doing, none of the new stuff she's doing, she actually needs to do in order to win. She could have won with her Rio routines. So she's just doing this to kind of show us how great she is. <laughs> so the new vault that she has performed, as you wrote in your post for Deadspan, it's going to be called The Biles because nobody's ever done it before. Um, and this would not be the first uh, routine that she's done uh, or um, – skill that she's done to be called the Biles because she's done a bunch of different things that no gymnast has ever done before. Can you um, explain the vault to us? Yeah. So it's, um, well, it's a round. So you do a round off and then a half turn onto the, onto the table. And then she does a front, like one and a half flips with two twists. Now, previously she was doing it with one and a half twists. And that vault is called the Chang. It's named for a Chinese gymnast. This vault has been done before, but only by the men. 
And on the men's side of the sport, as far as I know, is not named after anyone in their code. So, and the men and the women's codes have like different names for the same skills, depending on who did it first for the men versus who did it first for the women. So she's the first woman to compete it. And if she does it at the world championships, it will be named after her. And like you noted, she has another skill named after her. It's on the floor exercise. It's a double layout with a half twist. Who comes up with these skills? Is this something that she would develop in consultation with a coach? Is it something you're just kind of screwing around in practice? You're like, maybe I'm going to try this thing that could kill me. Like, what what are the origins of of, uh, a vault like this? Uh, Well, I mean, it already exists. So the idea exists in the universe before Simone decides she's going to try it. But it's a really hard vault. And certainly no woman had done it before. I wasn't in the gym when this was being trained. But I, you know, I, you know, having seen Simone train over the years, she plays around a lot in practice because, you know, that's just how gymnasts have fun of trying crazy things and seeing if they can do them. So while I, I don't know for certain, I suspect that maybe this vault came around, came about because she was messing around. I have no idea, really, honestly, with her. She has like such a high level of play in gymnastics because her abilities are so tremendous. Well, she said, I'm shocked by myself, surprised by myself to you when you interviewed her. And I think with some athletes, like the greatest athletes, it's almost boredom, right? It's it's what can I do that I haven't done before to keep myself engaged? Because mm-hmm. yeah, sure, she could do the same program she did in Rio, but she's already done the same program. You know, she did it once before and won all the gold medals. Um, so it, that the idea of challenging herself seems plausible to me, but when the you know the next step is why even continue to compete she's 21 which is on the very old end for gymnasts she doesn't really have anything left to prove she could go to college or have a lucrative career as a speaker and endorser and coach or whatever she wants to do so why did simone biles decide to keep competing i mean i think she really loves gymnastics it's it's so hard sometimes for for someone, for me to understand, like, why would you continue? You prove everything you need to prove. You've won everything. Your position in the sports legacy is secure. And, you know, it's, it'd be very unlikely that someone can come along in 10, 20 years and overtake her in terms of the medal standings, the gold medal standings. But she has, she's still kind of young. And the age of female gymnasts has crept upwards. It's not as young. They were not, they're not as young as they once were. I think the average age in Rio was 20. Um, but I'm not certain. Um, I, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was 20. I mean, if you had that ability and you spent your whole life doing it, yeah, you could move on right now or you can put another couple of years into it and then move on. I mean, it's, it seems like she really enjoys doing gymnastics. Yeah, I mean, the cultural expectation of gymnasts is to quit once they reach a certain age, but it's weird. I mean, it's not like we would expect that of other athletes well, or people in other careers. Well, the physical toll is so high, too, though, with a lot mm-hmm. of gymnasts. Yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to ask Devorah. It's like the the typical career track of doing one Olympics and being out. How much of that is just kind of cultural expectation? How much of that is physical toll? And how much of it is being younger and more flexible being more able to perform these skills when you're younger than when you're an old lady in your twenties? I think it's all three. Um, I don't know like what percentages like you can attribute to each one, but you know, Simone, 
um, as far as I know, doesn't have the same sort of injury track record of a lot of elite gymnasts. She hasn't been as injured. So that makes it easier for her to continue because she hasn't had as many severe injuries or surgeries. Some gymnasts, you know, can get really, you know, banged up. And so, so her body, um, I hope feels good. I mean, never going to feel great. It's still elite gymnastics. I think she talked about recently about like having fractured her toe, um, <laughs> but still competing. And, and there, there is an expectation, but I think also in a country like the United States, there are so many high level gymnasts here. And so the competition for very few spots is much more intense than it would be in another country. So I think you look at other countries sometimes and you can see that the gymnasts continue in the sport longer. And part of that is they just don't feel the same kind of pressure coming coming behind them. Well, Stefan, she was also able to take a year off, which has to be huge for a mental break. And the fact that she's so great, um, she's able to do that and kind of come back and still be her, you know, even better than she was. And I also wonder whether with someone like Simone Biles, she has the freedom because of what she's achieved to if, you know, if if it turns out she's not able to perform at this level, that she's still willing to continue to, you know, be part of of the sport competing. And and the one, I think, heartening story that I read about and that I think you've written about, Devorah, is about uh, Caitlin Ohasi, right? This mm-hmm. the woman who was very high level when she was 13, 14, 15, um, was a teammate of Biles, and because of injuries, dropped out of the sport effectively before she could achieve that Olympic potential. But rather than slink away and just basically say, gymnastics broke me she decided to go to college she's at ucla and she's competing at a lower level and she's happy she she there, there's a video uh, story about her on uh on the players tribune that's really heartwarming and affirming that it's possible <laughs> to take a step down from the pressure cooker of this sport and still be a part of it yeah, I mean, college gymnastics for a lot of gymnasts, a lot of former elite gymnasts is, I've, I've even written about this for Slate, is a really, a really positive um, experience. And it's a little bit lower level. They also get to have more of a life because in the NCAA, they're limited to 20 hours a week of training. So they have to learn how to balance, how to get their training done. Only three so, hours a day, you know. Only so, 20 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for gymnastics, that's not... It's not that much. <laughs> um, it's a it's a crazy sport like that, and yeah, they get to have more of a life. And I mean, you know, I think it's I think for people who follow gymnastics only during the Olympics, they, it's hard for them to see that the sport's much bigger than the Olympics. And and college college gymnastics is a huge huge part of the gymnastics ecosystem in the United States, and it's often forgotten, and it's forgotten that it's an option. So Stefan mentioned in his introduction, USA Gymnastics has appointed a new interim uh, head, Mary Bono, who was Republican, former congresswoman, and they apparently did not do the thing that you're supposed to do when you uh, hire a a new employee, which is look at the tweets. Uh, She had just tweeted a monumentally stupid tweet. thing about Nike pledging to boycott Nike, blacking out the swoosh um, because of their on her golf cleats because of <laughs> because of their because of their their sponsorship of Colin Kaepernick. But I think the thing that 
we should emphasize here, well, two things. Number one, we don't know if she's going to stay on as the CEO. This could, you know, even as we're recording this podcast, they could she could resign or they could force her out um, uh, this week. Who's, who's to say? But the thing is, this isn't something that's about, oh, she tweeted a dumb thing. Whoopsie. It's like anyone with this attitude, anyone who would tweet that, not the fact that the tweet was tweeted, should not be the CEO of any sport. Well, uh, and on top of that, a sport that, like a lot of Olympic sports, relies on money from Nike. I mean, it's stupid strategically along with being just like horrific, a horrific thing to think. And in response to this, you know, the attention to the tweet and what it said about uh, USA Gymnastics needs and its decision making was really brought into focus because Simone Biles to her, how many Twitter followers? A million? I think it's a million. um, Wrote mouth drop. Don't worry. It's not like we need a smarter USA Gymnastics president or any sponsors or anything. When I saw the Mary Bono tweet, and I believe it was probably some Gymternet people who found it. I didn't. I woke up to. I woke up to the news. I actually did you say Gymternet? By the way, I just want to clarify that you it's did say Gymternet. Yeah. <laughs> it's the gymnastics internet. Yep. It's very powerful. <laughs> um, I'm not just saying that because I'm a little bit afraid of them and also I'm part of it, <laughs> but um, no, they just, what, it, you didn't have to dig that far. It was just a month ago. Yeah, this wasn't like some tweet when Mary Bono was 16. <laughs> yeah, it was Mary Bono last month and, and just USA Gymnastics just like hire a 15 year old kid who could find anything on these people before they hire them, like pay them 10 bucks an hour and they could find all this information if they really wanted to. The scarier thought for me is they didn't know about the tweet, um, that they looked at her t- um, timeline and they didn't think there was a problem. That's the scarier thought as far as I'm concerned. Like, we don't even know. Maybe they did see the tweet and they're like, this seems fine. So Simone Biles' role in all of this, obviously the tweet brought tremendous attention. Um, and that was the headline on the New York Times story about Bono's tweet was Simone Biles' response to it. Um can you tell us a little bit about how Simone Biles has chosen to be a, a political figure in the wake of the Larry Nassar stuff? She hasn't been Allie Raceman out mm-hmm. there starting a foundation and, and rallying all of the survivors of this guy's abuse. She has been she has acknowledged what happened, but she's not leading the charge here. It's really been interesting to watch Simone Biles in this sort of second incarnation of her career. I hate to say comeback, she's gone for just a year and she's so young. But um, in the second incarnation, really sort of re- like figuring out her power. Um, you know, I think she had it for a really long time. I, you know, she was indispensable to American gymnastics before Rio. I mean, you couldn't imagine an Olympic team without her. So in theory, she, you know, could have spoken up if she felt the need or wanted to then. But I think, you know, she was really young and there, the, the scandal hadn't yet erupted. And now that she's a little bit older, she has a little more life experience. And she really recognizes, I think she understands her role in gymnastics and how important she is. And she can speak out and she kind of can get results. You know, she's not just speaking out. She has an impact. Like when she um, posted on social media about not wanting to return to the Crowley Ranch for training camps because she was abused there. Within days, the training camps were canceled. 
um, there and they've been sort of, they've been moving around ever since and now they're in Florida. So it's, it's, I, I, you know, I don't want, I don't, it's hard to speak to her exact role. Like you're, like you said, she's not like Ali Raisman, who's sort of a full-time activist on this front, but she does, you know, sort of, you know, speak out when she wants to and, the impact is almost immediate. So I, I'm really curious to see if Mary Bono survives this, um, if she's able to mend fences with Simone, but it's very clear that, I, I think I wrote this the other day, that Mary Bono might be the new head of the organization, but it's, it's um, Simone Biles is the most powerful person in the organization, <laughs> even if she's not on their payroll. But it's probably gonna be another generation um, maybe this is wrong, but until, you know, you could imagine Allie Raceman or even Simone Biles being in charge of USA Gymnastics someday. But it seems like what this Mary Bono appointment seems to point up is that, like, for all the change that's happened and for all the pressure that's on this group, it's still fundamentally the same group of people. Even if it's yeah. not the exact literal exact same people, it's the same kind of group of people with the same sort of generational beliefs that were there a few years ago. And it's going to take a while for the Biles Raceman generation to like actually take over the superstructure. Well, and the superstructure is 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 supported by the U.S. Olympic Committee, really, mm-hmm. and you know, everything gets approved. The The appointment of these people is not done lightly, though apparently it is when it comes to checking their Twitter feeds. But to put this into some just basic context, they hired a new coach for the women's program, a woman named Mary Lee Tracy, who had initially defended Nasser, and she was then asked to resign. I mean, they keep making these mistakes, and the more athletes like Ali Raisman and Simone Biles and their peers point them out, the stronger, ultimately, I think, these sportocracies are going to have to get. Yeah, it's, yeah, like, I don't think they've caught up to the fact that they can't do things the way they've always done them, and that they're not acting as though they're under constant public scrutiny, which they now are, (laughs) and that every single decision is going to be investigated. And they're not used to a group of athletes, some current and some former, but recently former, really speaking up and going after them. They're they're not used to the fact that the athletes have, in some small ways and some big ways, actually have some power now. And And they don't know how to deal with that. And that's because this is a sport where the athletes have been basically subjugated. They are under Mm -hmm. the control of these all-powerful coaches. Their parents cede a lot of responsibility to the programs that they are sent off to train at. And they they don't really learn that they have a voice until, as the Nasser case has demonstrated, it can be too late. Mm -hmm. And and I hope that's changing. I hope that I don't want it just to be that like these girls have to wait until their careers are long over before they can feel they can say anything because they were afraid to put their careers at risk while they were competing. I hope that's changing. You know, Simone is in a unique position in that she can't be left off a team. You know, she never has to worry about that. If she is healthy or healthy enough, because like I said earlier, gymnastics, <laughs> if she's healthy enough, she goes to any competition she wants to go to. Um, most gymnasts are not in that position, but hopefully there can be some changes. Even the gymnasts who are on the bubble 
who don't have, you know, basically virtual guarantees of making teams are able to also speak up when they feel like they need to. The world championships are starting, uh, at uh, towards the end of next week, October twenty mm-hmm. fifth in Doha, Qatar. So I'm looking forward to hearing Simone Biles' thoughts on uh, working conditions for folks building the World Cup stadiums. <laughs> right, Stefan? Absolutely. Why stop? Why stop, uh, uh, Simone? We we demand more. I wonder if they'll be able to get out that much um, to see that <laughs> the the training schedules at these competitions are pretty intense. You know, when they're not training, they're just, you know, in their hotel rooms resting. So I do wonder if she'll have a chance to really see the working additions for the World Cup stadiums. Where are you going to Doha? I am not, unfortunately. Well, I'm sure you'll be watching every second. Yeah, I'm just going to adjust my sleeping schedule, I'm sure. Devorah Myers (laughs) writes about gymnastics for Deadspin. Devorah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. We talked about the Biles in our segment just passed. We also talked about the Biles. Mm-hmm. That was the second move that is also called the Biles. Uh, Stefan, this is a phenomenon that uh, different gymnastic skills get named mm-hmm. after different gymnasticists. Mm-hmm. You got one for us? Uh, I think Devorah also mentioned the Chung Fei on the vault. There was another one named after women, uh, a woman gymnast. I'm looking at a list of these, and I'm going to go with the uh, the Hindorf, okay. named for Sylvia Hindorf. She was uh, an East German gymnast in the 70s. Um, I'm just going to read a description that I found here on Mental Floss, which is, of course, your source for all gymnastics news. It starts with the gymnast in a handstand on the high bar. She then performs a hip circle before releasing the bar. She flies over it in a straddle position before catching the bar again. That is the Hindorf. Sylvia Hindorf. After retiring, she worked as a coach in her club in Germany, later as a psycho as a physiotherapist. For some <laughs> important, was a member of the German national important team. Important context. Roman wrestling. Important context. Yes. What is your Hindorf, Stefan? Josh, I'm very excited about the UEFA Nations League. Have you been following the UEFA Nations League? Uh, I've seen that it exists on it various exists. scoreboards. Yeah, I will, uh, I will fill you in. The UEFA Nations League is a new European national team football tournament that will be held every two years and isn't the UEFA European Football Championship, which is held every four years. The 55 UEFA member nations are being divided into four leagues. The top league will hold a big final next year. Everyone else plays for promotion and relegation and some special qualification into the actual Euros. It's all a little convoluted in a European sportocrat way. Lots of rules and contrivances for what is ultimately an unnecessary new tournament that will force star players who already play too much soccer to play even more soccer to generate more broadcast and ticket revenue for the obviously not corrupt at all world of international football. But as an idea... 
it's reasonable. Have countries play sort of meaningful games. Meaningful meaning there's an ugly trophy and that carrot of side door Euros qualification at the end instead of playing meaningless friendlies. Predictably, people do seem to care about the UEFA Nations League. As I was writing this on Sunday, Italy was playing Poland on ESPN. Italy scored an extra time to win one nothing, and the announcer shouted about how Poland are going to get relegated to League B. Oh no, not League B. Montenegro, victors over Lithuania, they said. That was in League C, which is a nice transition to the thing I love about the UEFA Nations League, and that is the little frisson of amusement when you look at the schedule for something like this. It's kind of like United Nations Mad Libs. I love the soccer minnow countries, and on that subject, I recommend James Montague's book 31 Nil on the road with football's outsiders. And because all of the European minnows are grouped together in the UEFA Nations League, you get some fantastic matchups that if I had infinite time and infinite patience, I would watch. For instance, on Sunday, the Faroe Islands drew Kosovo one-to-one, Kosovo, the newest UEFA member, Azerbaijan tied Malta. It was a big day. We should say that Kosovo is only a minnow because a lot of the Kosovar players are like playing for Switzerland and stuff. They well, would they would be uh, they'd be better. Pa- they would be a power. They'd probably be League C, <laughs> maybe with the possibility of promotion to League B. But isn't Shakiri like who's one of the best players oh, in, yeah. the, in the world? A Kosovar, absolutely. Yeah, they'd kick the Faroe Islands' ass. Yeah, without the UEFA Nations League, also, Josh. When would Gibraltar have won a match in a competitive tournament? They beat Armenia on Saturday, one to nothing. First points ever in a competition. The win overshadowed the fact that the national anthem of Liechtenstein was played at the match instead of Gibraltar's national anthem. Pretty much the same. This would be the spot where I would play the Gibraltar national anthem, but I'm not going to do that because there's another anthem that must be played. And that, of course, is the UEFA Nations League anthem. Oh, wow. Solo Gladiators are marching into battle onto the pitch. Shouldn't it? Shouldn't uh, the different groups have different anthems? You could get promoted to getting like a slightly a better, better anthem. anthem. You could. This is some dramatic shit. Let's get the credits out of the way while we're listening. The composers are Giorgio Tunfort and Frank van der Heiden. The performances are by the Netherlands Radio Choir and the Radio Philharmonic Orchestra from the Dutch town of Hilversum. That's a definitely a Group B list. Uh, Are you starting to get group. pumped? I'm getting pumped. I'm getting operatically pumped. Let's talk about the lyrics. Gibraltar and Kosovo. But that's not what the lyrics are, Josh. This is the masterstroke of the UEFA Nations League anthem. If you can understand the words, then you must be a classics scholar because the lyrics are in Latin, which is a good way not to alienate anyone in Europe except maybe the Gauls who probably would have preferred Gaulish. The Greeks, too. I think I would have thrown in a verse in ancient Greek. But I think Latin works. First verse, solum odax, solum fortis, solum magnus, the only the bold, only the courageous, only the great. And then at the end of the first verse, she says, the nation's league. Those are the only words in English. I'm going to read some more because it's really fantastic. Qui manit fortuna, Josh, who will have fortune? 
Oh, qui eterna gloria. Oh, who gets the eternal glory? Sit optimo victoria, may the best win. Dies luxit, the time has come. Una, unite, lude, play. Certa, struggle. Presta, lead. Vinque, win. Omnes gentes, all people. Uncte gentes, people unite. Omnes gentes, hoc in lucerne, stand in the light. Omnes gentes, fortes gentes, strong people. Dies venit, the time has come. Oh, Dies luxit, oh, the new day. The Nations League. I would run through a fucking brick wall right now to watch Moldova play San Marino, which they did, by the way, on Friday. Moldova won two to nothing. And you didn't watch. I hadn't heard the anthem yet. (laughs) Josh, what's your Hindorf? On October 7th, a man named Lee Merkel died in Raleigh, North Carolina at the age of 83. His obituary said he had a religious-like devotion to the Syracuse Orange and his beloved Buffalo Bills. Not a monotheist. I can respect that. Uh, He had requested six Buffalo Bills players as pallbearers so they could let him down one last time. Deadspin's Barry Pacheski responded to this on Twitter by noting that dead people need to get a new bit, adding, my condolences to his family. And I would like Bill's Mafia to serve as my pallbearers because I would like my body doused in condiments and powerbombed through a flaming table. But back to the let him down one last time bit. This appears to have originated just five years ago, or at least that's what we've been led to believe. Uh, I was in the obituary for a Mansfield, Ohio man named Scott E. Insminger. He retired from General Motors after 32 years of service. He was an accomplished musician, loved playing the guitar, and was a member of the Old Fogies Band, a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan and season ticket holder. He also wrote a song each year and sent it to the Cleveland Browns, as well as offering other advice on how to run the team. He respectfully requests six Cleveland Browns pallbearers so the Browns can let him down one last time. The Browns honored him after uh, seeing this obituary. A team spokesman uh, spoke to his widow, found out that his favorite player was, of course, Lou Groza. The toe. The Hall of Fame kicker. The family uh, was presented with a Browns jersey bearing uh, Groza's number, number 76. He was a lineman. He hated being called a kicker, just for the record. All right. Lou Groza, who occasionally kicked the ball, but was a lineman. I don't respect Lou Groza for that. Go ahead. Um, so the team honored him by giving him a jersey with his name on the back, uh, with Groza's number. I mean, I guess that is like kind of the bare minimum that they could do, but it's something. Way to go, Browns. Um, so this is generally credited as being the first time that this joke was seen in an obituary. I did find a, a reference that came before that, though. The website DukeTapes.com, which is a listing of Duke Blue Devil games you can buy on DVD. As one does, it has a page of jokes about the University of North Carolina. That page dates back to at least 2007. And there's a joke on there that reads, after his last season, coach Matt Doherty called the team together and asked them to be pallbearers when he died. He wanted them to let him down one last time. So that's from 2007. Uh, It's not just an American thing. Just nine days after Insminger's uh, obituary, there was an obit for Robert James Kilby, One of his biggest passions was the Everton Football Club. He used to joke that when he died, he wanted six Everton players to act as pallbearers just so they could let him down one last time. 
Uh, Terence Terry Seibert of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in 2014. It was his last wish that his pallbearers be the Toronto Maple Leafs so they could let him down one last time. Uh, Edward Joseph Fashingbauer in 2014 never met a piece of wood he couldn't craft into something beautiful, had a soft spot for any and all animals, stayed loyal to Minnesota sports teams in bad times and in worse. He would have liked the Minnesota Vikings to be his pallbearers so they could let him down one last time. Simperify. Uh, February 2017, Jimmy Lee Vaughn wanted the Indianapolis Colts to let him down one last time. Edward Billy Roski, also in 2017, loved family, Mountain Dew, and motorcycles. Six Cleveland Browns pallbearers, so they could let him down uh, one last time. Did the Browns uh, bit again. In April 2018, Edward uh, Gautier introduced us to a slight variation. He opted to be cremated in lieu of a traditional burial for the sole reason that the New York Rangers are unavailable as pallbearers to let him down one last time. Three months after that, Jeffrey Clayton Regal in 2017 wanted eight Philadelphia Eagles pallbearers to let him down one last time. Not always an easy team to love, his wife said, adding that she suggested he pay allegiance to a different team. I just can't, he would say. If only he had lived for just a few more months, the Eagles would not have let him down. But uh, a long-suffering fan does not uh, have to forgive his team fully, Stefan. In July uh, of 2018, John Janice of Brookfield, Illinois, died in a car crash at the young age of 54, tragically. Um, according to his obituary, which was quite uh, lengthy, he excelled as a first baseman, had cat-like reflexes that uh, translated to make him a legendary street hockey goaltender, a lifetime fanatic follower of the Cubs, um, a chronic mental illness, quote unquote, that plagued him until his death, his Cubs fandom, that is. Uh, His stoic demeanor and fortitude in the face of adversity and setbacks were no doubt byproducts of his unrequited love for the Cubs, which was finally reciprocated in kind on November 2nd, 2016. Due to the sudden and unexpected nature of Johnny's passing, we were unable to fulfill his wish that the Chicago Cubs bullpen service as pallbearers so they could, et cetera, et cetera. Wait, when was that one? This year. Come on, man. You won the damn World Series. It was a slightly more specific complaint. The Chicago Cubs bullpen. Maybe he was let down by the fact that they signed a role this Chapman despite his history of domestic abuse. Um, but let him down one last time. An enduring joke. Come up with a new bit, maybe? I don't know. Do what you want to do. You're dead. Uh, That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, who never let us down. Thanks for listening. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.